Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. I want to bring down some Rabbeinu Bakya on Shemot 14, verses 20 and 21, because this was some incredible things to think about on Akaron Shel Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach that we were looking at, the festival of Matzot, that um, there was this pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And it says, one did not come close to the other all night. The Israelites begun their descent into the sea during the night. Which I love that Torah Wellsprings was bringing this down, that, you know, it's meritorious to sing the song at the sea and read as many Tehillim as you can during the Erev of the seventh day of Pesach. Which, by the way, on the Hebrew calendar, when you say it's the evening of a certain date, that comes first. So if you want to say, okay, the evening of the Shabbat. So the evening of the Shabbat is Friday night. Now, after the evening of the Shabbat, which is what we call Motzi Shabbos, which would mean the evening of first day. So it's just close to the end of Shabbos, not quite into the first day yet. We call that Motzi Shabbos. Because it's like we're right at the point in time which we can begin to say Havdalah, but we haven't quite said Havdalah yet, and it's not quite first day yet, officially. So we're still in Shabbat, but not really. That's called Motzi Shabbos. So the evening of the seventh day of Pesach is not when we celebrated the meal of Mashiach. We celebrated the meal of Mashiach Technically, at a Minka time to a Motsi time of the seventh day of Pesach. So I know that's kind of confusing because the Gregorian calendar really throws us off. But we have to understand that the Hebrew calendar, the beginning of the day starts with an evening. The end of the day ends with an afternoon. So by the time it's the evening again, that's the beginning of a new day. So... And you're like, yeah, but it's clearly evening before we light the Havdalah candles. It's like, I know, that's why the term motzi is there. So, but anyway, for what that's worth, hopefully that's helpful. I know it's confusing, but the evening. So the evening of the seventh day of Pesach, which is where we had our Kiddush and we had our, uh, you know, our time to uh, focus on the beginning of the sea splitting. Uh, it says that that's when we entered into the sea. So we began to go into the sea at that time. So it says that when the Torah in verse 19 of this chapter reported that the angel of God moved from before the people to behind the people, this was at the beginning of the night. So when we lit candles to go into the seventh day of Pesach, it was at that point that the cloud, the angel of Hashem, moved from before the people to behind the people, and the, we began to go into the sea. The meaning of all this is that from before the people to behind the people, this was at the beginning of the night. The meaning of this is that as well as in some other instances in the Bible, the attribute of justice described here or described there as the Malak Hashem, but as 
Okay, so it says Malak Elohim, but as Malak Ha Elohim. Ha Elohim and Malak Elohim. And it says, Nachmanides says that it is possible that the word Malak in this case is not a possessive, but an explanation. In other words, the Torah explains that the agent, the angel mentioned now moved to the rear of the people in a pillar of fire so that in addition to the pillar of fire now at their rear, the pillar of cloud, which used to be in front during the day, also moved to the rear. So the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, which we knew were one, they're seeming to act as two different things. One is called the angel of Elohim, and the other one is called the angel of Ha Elohim. And both of them were previously at the front, and now they're moving to the rear. So that's interesting. And it says that the pillar of fire now at their rear, the pillar of cloud, which used to be in front during the day, also moved to the rear at this time so that the two pillars separated the Egyptians from the Israelites. When the morning watch commenced, the Egyptians became victims of God's judgment. The morning time, by the way, is considered to be a time of grace and loving kindness. But at this time, what was grace and loving kindness for us was actually God's judgment on our enemies. And the reason I brought this up is because there's a gospel of grace that exists in the world today. And right now it's nighttime and daytime is coming, which will be the redemption, which is the redemption happens like sunrise. So it'll be like one fine morning when his life is over, you know, that kind of thing. Well, at that point, the grace that the enemies of God, who are people who are rebellious and disobedient to God's word, that very grace is going to be the very element and tool of judgment. So the time of the morning, which is grace, again, kindness, this is when the judgment of Hashem came for the Egyptians. This is the reason why we should not spend time focused on God judging the world but God redeeming the world, because why do we want people to be destroyed? Why do we want people to be without hope? If you feel like the world is going to get nuked, if you feel like fire and brimstone and asteroids and all that kind of stuff is going to happen, wouldn't you rather people be in a place of God's kindness than God's judgment? And to do nothing to affect that is self-incriminating. Because you're really showing your true colors at that point. I don't know about you, but I'm on team. Let's get this redemption. (laughs) I want as many Avengers as I can possibly find. I want everybody to suit up and blow stuff up in a good way. We need to be the asteroids that hit the earth. We need to hit the earth with some truth. Hit the world with some Yeshua. Clear up the name of JC because why does that name even exist? Because that name is only about 400 years old. And then we need to clear up Jewish. What is what is a true Jew? We need to clear that right on up. 
And we need to quit getting suckered. Yes, I did say suckered out of our observance. Just because somebody doesn't think you're legit, just because you haven't gone through the quote unquote formal conversion. Okay, so what? How are you going to live before the formal conversion? And how are you going to live after the formal conversion? Is that going to change? Because if it is, then you might want to stop and think about that for a second, because if formal conversion changes how you live, that's going to be a problem. Because you should be walking in that reality now so that when the form of conversion comes around, you're, it's just a public declaration. But it's like, I'm in, I'm committed. You know, when you get betrothed to someone, you don't go, oh, well, we're not married yet. So let me just go ahead and sleep around with other people and, you know, just go do all this other stuff. It's like, no, you're committed to that relationship. You know, what can I do to be prepared for marriage? What can we do to make sure we're on the same page? You know, study up, learn up, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's what it's like. So anyway, the word Eshmerot Haboker is an allusion to this. Ankelos translates this word as an allusion to the agent Memtet, who has been entrusted by Hashem to run the universe along the lines of natural laws. See, Memtet's thing is like, we're going to do this thing. We're going to make everything go down like it needs to, but we're going to do it the natural way. Everybody was expecting Yeshua to ride in on clouds of glory and just be like, come on, man, we're throwing out Rome and da-da-da-da. It's on, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Sign of Jonah. No, no, no. No, no signs and wonders. Nope, nope. Stretch forth your hand if your hand's withered. To the, the man with the withered hand, he says, stretch forth your hand. He didn't do all this magic, sorcery, incantations over him. He just spoke to him. You know, the blind man healing his eyes. The, the girl, the daughter of the father who passed away. You know, he says, little girl, wake up. You know, natural laws. You know, we're not going to go and, and like do this thing all over the top and stuff. So anyway, it says the order of various forces was as follows. You have number one, you have the, the camp of Israel in the front. Behind the camp of Israel, close to them, you have the pillar of fire because we stay close to the Torah. Come on. The number three, you have the pillar of fire that was close to the cloud. So you got Israel, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. Number four, that pillar of cloud came to the camp of the Egyptians. This means that two separate columns divided the Israelites from the Egyptians. The words, means that the Israelites had light as the pillar of fire, which was positioned immediately behind them, provided light for them. And it says, it lit up the night. The Egyptians did not benefit from this light as the pillar of cloud was positioned between them and the pillar of fire. The words they did not approach each other mean that they could not approach one another due to the two columns, the pillars separating the two camps from one another. There was a two pillar space between Israel and the Egyptians. Isn't that interesting how these two pillars represent the two Mashiachs? 
and you have the whole fact of Mashiach standing between us and our enemies. It says, nonetheless, the Egyptians could see the Israelites as they saw the pillar of fire through the pillar of cloud. When one sits back in the dark, one sees light, even if the light is distant. Israel, however, could not see the Egyptians as people bathed in light cannot see those who sit surrounded by darkness. It was therefore most important for the pillar of fire, which normally had traveled in front of the Israelites, to have taken up position behind them. Had it continued to be in front of them and light up the way for them, like on the preceding nights, the Israelites would have been invisible to the Egyptians, and they therefore would not have followed them. So, what's the purpose of that? So we have the Torah, we have the nation of Israel and the world handing in that business. We're being observant, we're bringing light into the world, all that kind of stuff, right? Well, the thing is, people have to have that so they can see here's where God is. Because if we didn't have any of that, there would be no light in the world because who else is doing Torah? But over here on the other side, we have Christianity who has taken parts of the Torah. Like, I don't know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um... What else? They say have no other gods before me, you know, and have only one God. But obviously that's not true. But anyway, some of these different commandments, you know, uh, don't commit adultery. You know, don't have all these ridiculous affairs. Uh, Don't steal. Don't kill. You know, they have commandments like that, right, that they keep. But mainly it's about love. Love God. Okay, that's totally a Torah commandment. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. So in that world, they have that little bit of light that shows. Because if that light wasn't there, then there would be a complete invisibility to the nation of Israel. Because there's so much darkness that exists apart from Torah, that it's it's ridiculous. Like, and you can find more lights of Torah in other faiths, and these are all to give all mankind, no matter what religion, no matter what faith, you know, no matter what people group, no matter what culture, to give them an ability to see where they need to go. Because had the Egyptians not had this pillar of fire, and the pillar of cloud near them, they would have had nothing to pursue. And so that alludes to the fact, speaking specifically of Christianity, that, okay, so the 25th of the winter month, which is Kislev on the Hebrew calendar, but December on the Gregorian calendar, the 25th of the winter month, they think, oh, we need light, we need gifts. We need a tree. We need uh, joyous songs. We need uh, miracles. 
And it's like, well, that was Hanukkah. The tree was the menorah. The gifts was the oil. Because each night, Hashem gifted us with that and gifted us with the temple being given back to us, rededicating it. The miracles was that the oil did not run out and that we gained victory over the Greeks. So it's just kind of like, okay, okay, it's springtime. Okay, we need something very vibrant. We need to, you know, hype this thing up. You know, the Messiah died. He was buried and he was resurrected. Okay, we need to think about how to do this. Uh, Okay, let's get this... Uh, Get this day where we cover ourselves in gloom and darkness. We have a candlelight vigil and look at the crown of thorns and look at the cross and we mourn and then, you know, take a day off and then we come back early in the morning and then we, we celebrate. We have a sunrise service. The tomb's empty. He's risen indeed. Let's get more gifts. Let's go have our children go find these eggs, you know, because we had to go find Mashiach's body, you know, and we couldn't find it. Common sense would say on that, if you couldn't find Mashiach's body, why why you got to be finding eggs? You should not be able to find any eggs. It's like, but yeah, but if they find the eggs, they get a gift. You know, like if they find if they find Yeshua, you know, buried or whatever, it's like, no, not buying it. <laughs> but anyway, you can see how there's that, that element there of we should be doing something with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Mashiach, which is already built into Chag HaMatzot. We literally celebrate, celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection from the get-go. What do you think the 14th of Nisan is all about? The lamb being slain. What do you think the 15th of Nisan is all about? The body being in the grave. What do you think the 16th of Nisan is all about? The body raising up from the grave. Nobody knows where his body is. He, where his body is, we can't find it. He's alive. He's risen. And it didn't happen early in the morning. It happened at the beginning of the day, which early in the morning on the Hebrew calendar is at nighttime. It's in the evening. So he rose one fine evening when it was dark outside. Everybody was going to count the Omer, but they didn't go to his tomb. Because you realize, I brought this out in my podcast last week, that one of the things you do on the 16th of Nisan in the evening, which is at the beginning of the 16th of Nisan, which is as you're coming out of the first day of Passover, there's a big fanfare that goes out the dark that night, and they go and they reap the Omer. And they say, is this a Omer? Is this a Omer? Is this a Omer? Is this a Omer? Like a whole big fanfare thing. So you go and raise up the Omer at the beginning of the 16th of Nisan, which is at nighttime, following the afternoon of the 15th of Nisan, which is the first day of Pesach. And again, I know that's really confusing because it's just kind of like on the Gregorian calendar, that's all happening on the same day. So it kind of feels like the 15th and 16th of Nisan are happening on one Gregorian calendar day. But it's like, well, yeah, the morning part of the 15th of Nisan to the afternoon, that's happening on the same day as the nighttime part of the 16th of Nisan. So you kind of got to split the day in half and then you can be on the Jewish calendar. But anyway, 
all that to point out that there's this element of light that exists for those who are not in Israel, like those who are not a part of the covenant people, those who are outside of covenant have this light so that they can see a picture where they should go. So the question is, if you see where you should go, why are you rejecting the light that you're being shown? Because that's barely anything because the children of Israel can't even see the Egyptians because they're in so much light. So anyway, I just thought that was an interesting thought. Just looking at the whole, you know, there's two clouds and the children of Israel would have been invisible had not these two clouds moved back there. And had not Mashiach Yeshua been a part of Christianity, you know, the light of Lapid could not be really gleaned. It would have been completely invisible because how do you really go from zero to a hundred, you know, without slowly working your way up? You know, many of us who are a part of Lapid, you know, we're blessed and fortunate because, you know, we've gotten to know that we have to believe in the Mashiach and that that's crucial to our relationship with Hashem. And now we're working out all the details and lots of cases we're having to deprogram ourselves from uh, things that confuse us, like namely the calendar, namely the name and uh, always needing to prove things, you know, as opposed to just being comfortable with the sources. Like again, Baba Ben Butra, when he was talking to King Herod, he just, he was totally fine. Kohelet says this, Exodus says this, you know, uh, Bami Bar says this. It's like, I have nothing to prove to you, O King. You know, I, I, I don't do things from a natural perspective. I'm, I, I operate in the supernatural while I'm in the natural because I connect myself to the Torah. So, Shemot 14.21 goes on to say, Rebbeinu Bakya, the waters were split. The meaning is the waters remained split after separating. The splitting of the waters occurred first by the strong easterly wind, which was designed to get rid of the wetness of the bed. This process was parallel to one described in Bamibar 16, or, or, wow, Shemot 16.20, where it says the, of the sea enabling it to become dry land became worm eaten and stank. The meaning there is that after it, the manna began to stink. The worms began to eat from the foul smelling mass. So it's saying that the wind that pushed back the waters was designed to get rid of the wetness and all the stank and all that kind of stuff. Cause we're talking about a sea here. So let's clean this all up because what happened when the manna was kept and stored overnight, when it wasn't supposed to, uh, there was the foul smelling mass, it stank, there was worms and all that. Well at the sea, when, when the sea split, all of that was removed. There was no stank, no foul odors, no wetness, none of that. Goes on to say, a midrashic approach based on the makilta, the words, the water split instead of the sea split, 
mean that waters throughout the universe split at the same time? Ishpela wants to note that the writers of the Makilta back during the first century here, they knew that there was waters and planets and stuff like that going on in the universe without NASA or anybody else telling them that there were seven or nine or eight or 13 planets or not a planet Pluto is and Pluto's out, you know. They knew that there were other uh, cosmic solar systems that were out there, other galaxies, you know. They knew about Vulcan, you know, during the first century before we had all that stuff. So anyway, uh, it says that the reason we must understand the words in that way is because it had been a local phenomenon only. It had it been a local phenomenon, only the Torah should have written the waters split. And by the way, the word for the water split, it uses the word that rearranges to Yaakov. So Yaakov, it literally says in Yaakov waters. And Yaakov means split. Which when you say Vai Baka, which rearranged Yaakov to Baka, that means to split. So when we look at Yaakov, Yaakov represents like this or it's related to the splitting of the waters, you know, namely between Abraham and uh, Yitzhak, that you have Yaakov who split through in the middle of that because Abraham all chesed, Yitzhak all strict justice, and then Yaakov goes right through the middle with the harmony of that. So the unifying element of kindness and severity. Is beauty, Yaakov. So, as we're going through the sea, we're literally walking in the perfect balance of fear and love of Hashem, which is the path of the way of the truth in life, is that our fear and our love ultimately have to be unified as we walk with Hashem. Sephis Amos was bringing down this on Parsha Shemini that you know, we have to serve Hashem with fear and love and truth. And that's the, the ultimate way of our devotion and service to Hashem. And that's how we have anything that lasts. Because if we only love Hashem and we don't fear Him, or if we only fear Hashem and we don't love Him, and if we do either of those things with the truth or without the truth, it's not perfect until we bring all of those items in together. The fear, the love, and the truth. So if you think about doing kindness and truth and justice and all of that, that's the way that you walk in the way, the truth and the life. That is the path through the sea, which as Rabbi Trugman brings down, that is teshuva on teshuva. That is repenting on your repentance. Find things in your life that you previously repented for and make more repentance on top of that. That's how you walk in the way, the truth, and the life. So you're always renewing yourself. You're always working on something. No downtime. And again, as you think about this season that we're in with Sephirat Omer counting Omer headed to Shavuot, I mean, you're setting yourself up for some ridiculousness on Shavuot. Because we we're going to have an all-night Torah study. We're going to be up all night studying the Torah, celebrating the giving of the Torah and all that. And it's like, man... 
I'm so new inside of new on top of new. And that's what I do. And what about you? You know, like we got all that going on. And it's like you're again, the supernatural is built on the natural. So you're working your way up, right? This process. And when Hashem brings in that supernatural element, so much as you've prepared, that's what you're going to receive. So anyway, says there is another dimension of the splitting of the sea, which will make you understand that it was essential that all the water in the world be split at that time. That a total change in behavior of natural law occur at that time. Our sages in a vote five, three have accepted as an axiomatic that at that time, when this miracle occurred, there occurred 10 miracles simultaneously. All of these miracles may be derived from the wording of this paragraph. The first one is that the waters were split into a number of fissures, separate paths, as is evident from the simple reading of the text. After the waters were split, they became like a hat, like the shape of a roof stretched out from the top. Like, you know, the big triangle roof houses that we see, like where you pull up, like where if you t saw a flat roof, pinch the middle of it and just pull it up and it makes that kind of typical way you draw a house the way that that's the way I would draw a house roof because that's the extent of my drawing skills and then it would say it says uh stretch stretched out from the top the normal water on the left and to the right the path was in the center this is the meaning of the words and the waters were a wall for them to their left and to their right the ground under the sea did not remain like the riverbed of rivers, which run dry in the summer, etc., and they're muddy, but they turned into solid, dry ground. This is why the Torah wrote they walked on dry land. Then it says, The path traveled by the Egyptians had remained wet like mud, loam. It says, This is what is meant by. They were mired in the sea of reeds. And the word uh, tevia is always in reference to something sinking into mud. We have another example of this in Te'elim 69.3, where it says, I am sinking in the slimy deep and find no foothold. Yermiyahu 38.6 means the same thing. This disaster which struck the Egyptians was a great miracle and this is why it is considered as one of the 10 miracles which were performed for the children of Israel at the sea. Habakkuk 3.15 describes graphically how God performed this miracle. You will make your steeds tread the sea, stirring the mighty waters. Fifth miracle, the fact that all these waters froze and solidified. Zakin Ishmael, comma, our war machine, Avenger, brings down that it's really, really hard to see to freeze seawater because it's full of salt. So it takes very, very cold temperatures to freeze this water. So that means it should have been super cold down there in the underneath the sea as we were walking through on dry ground. It says this is the meaning of the words, the sea, the deep froze. 
The word is taken from Job 10.10. You congealed me like cheese. The water became hard as stone. This is, the, this is spelled out in 15.5. They went down into the depths like a stone. The Torah means that just as the depths are hard... Just as the depths are hard as stones, so the waters became hard as stone. This causes one to break one's head on impact, as mentioned by David in 74, Psalm 74, 13, who smashed the head of the monsters in the water. Unless the water had become hard as a stone, this is hard to understand. The waters did not solidify into one giant chunk, such as an iceberg, but into smaller blocks. This is the meaning of the words, they stood arranged like a wall. So in other words, to our right and our left, it looked like the coattail wall, like these stone walls that are stacked up on top of each other. So if you've seen the, the coattail, the western wall, that's what the sea looked like on, on our right and our left. And then it says that, um, boom, boom, range like blocks. And then it says, David explained the term there in greater detail when he said, Psalm 74, 13, it was you who smashed into pieces the sea with your might. Number seven, the sea parted into 12 parts to, to provide 12 lanes, one for each of the tribes. This is based on the word Zay and Zay, Ve'anaknu El. This is my God. And I will exalt him. The numerical value of the word Zay, 12, David speaks of God having divided the sea into numerous sections. Tehillim 136.10. Number eight, the waters, even when congealed, remain transparent like glass. So now you got glass brick walls to your right and to your left and there are 12 lanes of this hmm. so they're straight see-through so you can see everybody uh as they're going through so everybody's looking at each other and it says that uh the bricks are like clear bricks so that the members of one tribe could see the members of the other tribe next to them in the adjoining lane this is the meaning of the words, the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The word appears also in Zachariah, Zechariah 14.6, where, where it appears to mean freezing time, neither cold nor sunshine, a suspension of normal changes from night to day. So darkness and light time day and night were frozen in time so it's like it's neither night or day and it's like but it was nighttime when we went into the sea so technically it should have been dark down there and if we stayed in there long enough it would have been eventually daytime but it's like nope let's suspend all that we're gonna have just the light that we need to be able to see each other and we're gonna have just the temperature we need and the paths are going to be as wide as they need to be and all that. I don't even know what I'm reading right now. This is ridiculous. It's Rebenu Bakia on Shemot 1421. But it's just like trying to wrap your mind around this. <laughs> Time froze. 
Then it said, God extracted sweet waters for drinking by the Israelites from the salty seawater. You go and get a cup of seawater right now, run it through the best filters, and it ain't going to be sweet. I'm just saying. This is the meaning of the the word in 15.8 where Moshe describes this sweet water as dripping forth from blocks of frozen water, frozen seawater, that is. So remember those window stone block looking things? So you can just reach up into it and pour yourself out a cup of sweet water or a handful of sweet water. It says the expression occurs in the Song of Songs 415 as an attribute to pure spring water gushing forth from the mountains of Lebanon. And the last of the 10 miracles, the sweet water froze again as soon as the Israelites had made use of it for their needs. This explains the peculiar sequence in 15.8 that says straight as a wall stood the running water, the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The verse tells us that something which had been dripping, running, subsequently froze in the middle of the sea. And this concludes the list of the 10 miracles performed at the sea. So I just wanted to share that because there is a whole lot of miraculous things that happens when Hashem delivers us. And that as we're in Parsha Shemini, that we're in this Parsha about fostering and, and uh, cultivating these supernatural things, but in the natural. Like Hashem provides for us all the time, but we have to go to work, you know, and holiness infuses our life, but we have to bring ourselves to the word of God. You know, even after you've been quote unquote saved, you still have to learn, you still have to grow and, you know, you're fostering transcendence and uh, the eighth dimension, the supernatural, uh, intrinsic kedusha into your life. And it's it it be it blah. it begins and it becomes beyond what you can see. It begins and it becomes beyond what you can see. That's why I was a tongue twister, like trying to say all that. So this is the beauty of of, of serving Hashem and, and having a single devotion to Him. It's just like, well, I don't know if I'm. If I'm doing well right now, it's just like, are you walking with Hashem? Are you connected to Him? You're, you know, being holy as He calls you to be holy. You know, studying the mitzvot, doing the mitzvot, you know, uh, working on your character traits, counting your omer, getting ready for Shabbat. You know, are you Hashem's bride? You know, do you want to get married to the Torah? You know, all these kind of things. Are you renewing your vows on a daily basis with the Shema? And it doesn't look like anything is like fireworking around you. But that's how it's supposed to be. Because Hashem, until the final redemption and the Olam Haba, we're refining the natural and we're making this place a home for Hashem. Which is the whole reason why the whole doomsday judgment gospel is so ridiculous. 
because it takes away the focus. It takes away the the true mission that we're supposed to embark on. So I pray that we're all doing that. And I pray that we continue to do that. And may we continue to ascend and ascend and become new and new and new. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai.